Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we look into his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us your word and it interprets life for us. We thank you for this passage that uh, instructs us not to worry. And as we look around our nation and our world, it would be easy for us to worry. Help us today to lay hold of your word and the scriptures of it and be encouraged by it. In thy name we ask it. Amen. Proverbs 14.12. Do we have the uh, PowerPoint? Okay. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. The way that this verse is speaking about is the way of the natural man. The natural man seeks to understand life without taking God into consideration. And as a result, all he can look to to discover what life is about is what's within his life. That, that's going to end up in destruction because it's going to exclude God and the revelation that God gives. It's like trying to gain the meaning of what's inside a box by only being inside the box. But if what is inside the box was put there by someone outside the box, you can't really understand the meaning of what's in the box without going outside the box. And when we try to discover how life works without going outside the box of our own behaviors and our own experiential knowledge of life, we'll draw false conclusions because we've not taken into consideration that which is outside the box. In other words, if we base our starting point for life with the assumption that all that is knowable is what's observable by us, then we'll come up with a limited understanding of our lives, and that's what we tend to do. We all have a, a leaning toward a fleshly, godless, natural man understanding of life. We're conditioned to this by our current scientific approach to discovery of life and everything about it. This wires us to respond to life in what the Bible calls pagan ways. This pagan or God-ignoring way of the natural man results in a heavy load of worry. And I want to show you how that works as observed by a psychologist. This shows us how we are wired for worry when we exclude God from the picture of life. And after we look at this, then we're going to go through this passage in Matthew and learn how to get rewired so that worry is not the driving motivation of our souls. Uh, this is called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And if you've had Psych 101, you've been exposed to this. Um, Maslow conceived that uh, everything was driven by our need to meet our needs. And the basic biggest needs are our physiological needs, uh, food, water, air, warmth. And those need to be met before we can concern ourselves with, say, our safety needs. Our safety needs will be secured uh, before we concern ourselves with our family, our belongingness needs. And being part of a family or a group will be more important to us than our own self-esteem. And having self-esteem will be more important to us than our life actualization potential. And when the more base needs are threatened, then the higher needs give way. For instance, 
if I'm starving, basic physiological need, I will get the courage to overcome my fear of heights, which is a safety need, and climb the tree to get the fruit that's up there so that I can have something to eat to meet my base need. It's the way it all works. And concern for moting, meeting these needs or worry prioritizes our choices and our actions. It determines why we do one thing over another. And there's one sense in which we can say Maslow's hierarchy is a worry-based explanation of human behavior. And if we live as if there is no God and we are only products of our evolution and culture, we'll follow the principles of Maslow's hierarchy. We say, hey, it makes perfect sense. And when we allow this hierarchy of needs to simply rule our lives, we'll be marked by worry. Our decisions will be based on our worries and fears, and our lives will not be honoring to God. Now, in this passage, Jesus teaches us how to live victoriously over worry and turns Maslow's hierarchy on its head. And I'll explain that in a few minutes. So what do we worry about? Well, Jesus says we worry about life. Matthew 6.25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink. Now this parallels Maslow's foundational needs of physical needs and safety needs, and we worry about what we're going to eat and drink, and those are pretty basic things. And these basic worries about life are really questions as to having the security to preserve our lives. And we want to live as long as we can, and we recognize that our diet plays a part of our longevity. And one of the problems is this. Good diet combined with worry or anxiety or stress will shorten your life, not lengthen it. Worry stresses you. Worry will create all kinds of life-threatening physiological issues from a stiff neck to ulcers to bowel problems and high blood pressure. And all of those issues tend to shorten life regardless of how well you eat or, you know, what life-extending products you take that are constantly being hawked. We worry about our body. He says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And this kind of parallels Maslow's belongingness or esteem needs. You see, our clothing does much more than just cover us for modesty and keep us warm in cold weather. If it didn't, we would have no fashion industry. Clothing would just be a, a commodity and all of it could be the same color and style and look alike and we would think no more about what clothes to wear than we would think about what styrofoam cup to use. Our concern for what to wear is not about just covering our nakedness and keeping warm. Our clothing concern arises out of a desire to be accepted by others, belongingness, and to exhibit ourselves according to our self-image that we want to project. That's an esteem issue. What we are like is reflected by the clothing we choose to wear. And when we're choosing our clothes to buy and put on, we're really asking ourselves questions like this. Well, how well will I be accepted if I wear this to this place? How am I going to be perceived? Will I look my best? And if you don't believe me, you just got to ask an eighth grade girl what she has to have in clothing before she gets to school this year. 
Okay? Right? Your esteem is all tied up in it. And he says, don't worry about tomorrow. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Worrying about tomorrow parallels Maslow's self-actualization needs. It works this way. We wonder what bad thing, what calamity in the future is going to mess up my opportunity to make my life what I envision as possible. What might happen to spoil my plans? What future difficulty would keep me from becoming all I can be? By the way, I think we only have future worries about bad things happening. If we think about good things possibly happening in the future, that's not worry. You know, nobody worries about, well, boy, what would I do if I win the publisher's clearinghouse and have a million dollars or more? We don't worry about that. Good future possibilities do not create anxiety or worry in us. I think basically all our worries can be traced back to one of these three areas. Let me say one more thing. Some of you are thinking, well, no, no, that's not true. I, I don't worry about those things. I worry about my kids. Okay? Well, let's examine that a minute. What do you worry about about your kids? Well, I worry about them getting hurt. Well, that's their life. And my mother always worried about I was going to end up dead in the ditch whenever I got in the car. Isn't that correct, Sue? <laughs> I was worried about Mom, don't worry about me. I came home so that I could drive you places. <laughs> or I worry about them having friends and being happy. Well, that's the worry about their body. Or I worry about them getting an education and having an opportunity for a good job or a good husband or a good wife, their tomorrow, their actualization of their potential. If, you're doing, if all you're doing is worrying about your kids, what you're trying to do is control their lives with your love, and God never directs us as parents to do that. It only ends up putting pressure on your kids and creating anxiety in you. You start to get a twisted sense of your success, your self-esteem, by the way your kids respond to you. And that's not what God designed parenting to be about. And I'd love to explain more about that, but that's another whole message series. Uh, now the fact is, if we are worrying, we shouldn't. It is not God's will for you to worry. Why? Well, the first reason we should not worry is because it is commanded. It says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. The verb is an imperative. God expects us to obey his commands, just like God said, thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. God also says, don't worry. If you need it more clear by the Elizabethan English, we can do that. Thou shalt not worry. <laughs> okay. God commands, give an indication of the will of God. And then he turns the responsibility for obedience over to us. God commands things that we can choose to do or not to do. This tells me that if I'm worrying, it's because I am choosing to worry. Oh, pastor, now you're meddling. And I have the 
option to make a different choice. I can choose not to worry. The second reason we should not worry is because it's useless. That is, worry will not change outcomes or help productivity relative to the things that are the objects of my worry. The Bible tells me I cannot make my life longer by worrying about it. As a matter of fact, it will probably shorten it by worry. You see, if worry could lengthen life, it would be a medical treatment. You know, you'd go to the doctor and they'd say, uh, I want you to take these pills twice a day, and then every time you take a pill, just spend about 15 minutes wringing your hands and worrying about whether or not they're going to work. And if you have a difficult time getting into the worry mode, I've got a news website that only shows the worst news, most vexing stuff all the time. That should help you lose some sleep. And if you're still uh, not in the worry mode, then I'm going to put a garnishment on your wages so that you can wonder where your next meal is coming from, and we'll have you over this heart attack in no time. And no, that's ridiculous. It's useless to worry. It's faithless to worry. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Jesus says, worry shows a lack of faith. Now there are some serious implications to that statement. You see, it's impossible to be pleasing to God Without faith, Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And it's also a sin, Romans 14.23 says, and whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So it's faithless. And then it's pagan-like. Jesus says in verse 32, why be like the pagans? who are so deeply concerned about these things. Your Heavenly Father already knows all your needs. We act like those who do not know God when we worry. That is what a pagan is. A person who lives as if there is no God, or as if God doesn't care about him, or as if God has no influence on this earth. Those are all pagan testimonies about God. Okay. And that's not our testimony about God if we have a relationship with him as a member of his forever family. So we know now that we are wired for worry in the natural man, but it's a choice that we need to learn not to make. So why we need not worry. Now in this passage, Jesus gives us several reasons why we need not worry. The first one I call the fowl's reason, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Understand and believe that God does care. He values you and me more than he values the birds, and yet he cares for them. He supplies for their physiological needs. He looks after their life. 
my wife and I went on vacation recently up to Lewis and Clark Lake, and I stepped out the door one early morning to have a cup of coffee and looked up in the tree, and that's what I saw, <laughs> a robin feeding their babies. And I was reminded of this verse. God takes care of the creatures he's created. Therefore, since we are of greater value to God than birds, we should conclude that he will take care of us. He will supply for our physiological needs as well. Therefore, I do not need to worry about what I'm going to eat. And then there's the flowers reason. The second reason we don't need to worry is because of the flowers. And he says, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, that they do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? God knows how to supply to you esteem, admiration, and belonging. He can do it through supplying for how you look. He can also do it through a beautiful spirit that shines through your physical appearance, whatever that physical appearance is. God has eternal and universal good taste rather than temporal and cultural good taste. Who does not appreciate the beauty of a flower? Flowers are universally appreciated for their beauty, yet they last only a season. Perhaps one of the most esteemed men who ever lived would have been Solomon, and yet his glory and esteem was cultural and limited. What God provides is transcendent. Psalm 139 says, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Peter speaks to women and says this in 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. You know, you don't need to worry about outward expressions of beauty and image if you will just give it to God to supply. And then there is the future reason. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The future reason not to worry is that it is future. You can only live today today, and you can only live tomorrow tomorrow. You can only actually handle the future in the future. Now, it is true that you can plan and prepare per, for future eventualities, and God has given you responsibility to plan and, and have a plan to think ahead. Don't misunderstand this instruction to be saying things like, well, you shouldn't have any insurance, or you shouldn't uh, be saving for old age, or don't have anything uh, saved up in your bank account uh, the, for the possibility that your car may break down. That's simply wise planning for things that are reasonable expectations of life situations. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer 
and gathers her provision in the harvest. Preparing for the future by saving or living on a budget and the like is proper preparation. It's not the same as worry. It's wise planning. And we all know that many times, in spite of wise planning and your best use of judgment to prepare, bad things can happen for which you could not prepare. Being obsessed with the possibility that those things may happen, that's worry. That's what you're being warned against here. You must also recognize that God does not promise Christians that they will never suffer calamity or trouble in their lives. If you were in Sunday school, you saw a whole class on that. Uh, What Jesus is saying here is that if it comes in your future, God will enable you to deal with it at that time. Worrying about the possibility of it coming is not a profitable use of today's emotional energy. The first resource we will have in the event of any future calamity is that Jesus will still be there with us, loving us, caring about it, and giving us strength to deal with that potential future calamity. Saw an interview this week with a guy that had escaped the flood in Kentucky. And he told about, well, we got up in the attic and, and somehow I found a hammer, a claw hammer, and I ripped through the roof and got out on the roof by God's grace. God was still with them. And they escaped with their lives. And sometimes that's all we'll escape with. John 16, 33 says, These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. Jesus wants to, us to live with peace in our hearts, in our spirit, rather than having a spirit full of vexation. His presence is all we need for maintaining peace. To be filled with worry over the future is to somehow think and express that Jesus will not be sufficient for our needs. So, if we seem to be naturally wired for worry, how can we get rewired? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that it is a matter of obedience. It is a matter of obedience. Do I understand that Jesus is directing me not to worry? Do I understand that the truth is I can choose not to worry? You see, my worrying is an attempt to control by my thoughts that which is uncontrollable and unpredictable. I think if I can control and feel safe and secure in my mind and my ability to have this worry, then I've got some kind of control. It's a false belief. Worry is really an attempt to exclude God from my life. It is an attempt to be in control and not have to trust God in some area. I want to find my safety and security in myself and my abilities rather than in God and in his provision. It's a matter of faith. Do I really believe that God values me more than all the other things and creatures that he cares for? Do I really believe God knows best for me and will control things unto my good, as it says in Romans 8, 28? And we know that God causes all things to work together 
for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. If I'm worrying about my life, about my body, about my future, then I'm living with my life priorities reflected by Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So it's a matter of priority. If I'm going to choose to live by faith in God, then I must turn the priorities around with the recognition that I do not live in a godless system, but that God is in control. And that changes everything. If God is in control, that changes everything. The key to this perspective is in Matthew 6.33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let me show and explain how this turns Maslow upside down. I call this Christ's hierarchy of needs. First of all, it says, seek first his kingdom. Do you realize that seeking first his kingdom is a self-actualization through knowing God in Christ with a view towards becoming like Christ, the perfect human? That's what Romans 8.29 tells us is the good that God wants to turn in our life from Romans 8.28. That he's going to make us like Christ. That's more a God-actualization than a self-actualization, really. It says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that's esteem and belonging, through doing right actions before God and man. How does that happen? In Christ. And all these things, that's the physiological and safety needs, will follow because God, who is truly in control, knows that we need them. So it turns it completely upside down. Without going into lots of theological detail, let me say this. Seeking first his kingdom means that my first priority in life to, is to work together with God to become like Christ in my character and my actions unto his glory. This is actualizing my potential before God. It is the purpose for which he created me. It is more important than meeting my physical and safety needs. It's more important than meeting my esteem and belongingness needs. Why? Because it's the purpose for which God created me. Fulfilling his purpose happens in knowing his person. It says seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You know, I started reading that, and I thought, well, why doesn't say, used to be an English teacher, okay, seek first his kingdom and its righteousness. It doesn't say seek its righteousness, because seeking first the king, kingdom is seeking first the king. The kingdom is wrapped up in knowing the king, Jesus Christ himself, and having that personal relationship. And in knowing him, then his righteousness is added to you. And he has righteous deeds that he'll walk you through in the course of your life. That's why the Bible says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The wonderful promise we have in Romans 8.28 about everything working together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purposes followed by Romans 8.29 which defines our purpose from heaven's perspective. For those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. God has an agenda for you to become the best person you could ever possibly become through your relationship to Jesus Christ. It is a God actualization rather than a self actualization because it's empowered by God working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And when that is happening, there is peace in your soul and love in your heart and grace in your life expressions to others. There are no worries. There are two very practical ways to adjust your motivational priorities to rewire your worry network. Notice that this instruction is given as a follow-up to Jesus' statement that we cannot serve two masters. This is really a practical instruction of what causes us to serve the money master and how to escape the money master's service. It is telling us what to do mentally to allow God to become our master if we've been in service to the money master. Going back to 624, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. So what do we do? Well, we can make priority changes in where we spend our money. Think about kingdom-oriented spending rather than simply earth-oriented spending. Have you ever thought about that? Well, what would God have me do with the money that he gives me? Make priority changes in where you spend your time. Think about kingdom-building time rather than career-building or simply self-building time. And as God guides you in faith to make changes, you'll find that you've become rewired by the Holy Spirit to have different concerns, and your worry wiring will no longer be operative. You will have peace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it informs us of your love for us. It informs us of the way to escape uh, the, the worry that is so common to humanity. And when we see the world spinning out of control and so many things that are just beyond our comprehension, it's easy to fall into worry. And so we would pray, Father, that you would release us from that worry. Help us to make the choices to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust because of your promise that all of these other things will be added to us. In thy name we ask it. Amen.